Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Robert C. Post, author of the book The Taft Court, Making Law for a Divided Nation, 1921 to 1930. Robert, welcome to the New Books Network. It's a pleasure to be here, Mark. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. So I'm a I'm a, a professor of law at Yale Law School. I have a degree, a PhD in American civilization from Harvard and a JD from Yale. Um, I taught for 20 years at um, UC Berkeley in the law school, and I've taught for about 20 years here at Yale in the law school. I've also been the dean of the Yale Law School for um, eight years. I mean, it's quite a prestigious career, and in so many ways, this book serves as a, a capstone to your academic achievements. It's part of this uh, series called the Oliver Wendell Holmes Device. Now, I was wondering if you could perhaps talk about a bit about the series and how you came to be involved in writing the volume about the uh, Supreme Court under William Howard Taft. Of course, it's a really interesting series. When Oliver Wendell Holmes who is, of course, uh, the great American uh, Supreme Court justice, um, died. He had no children and no surviving family. And he chose to to leave his estate to the United States government in his will. And uh, the government of the United States is used to taking, of course, inheritance taxes (laughs) and takes your money in a variety of ways. But it had never had money devised to it in a will. And it had no procedure for deciding what to do with this money. So it sat on it for a number of years, one could say decades, And then it decided in the end that it would use the money to sponsor a more or less, I say more or less, official history of the Supreme Court of the United States. And the volumes were assigned on the basis of chief chief justices, chief justiceships. So one volume went for when... uh, for example, Charles Evans Hughes was chief justice, another for Melvin Fuller, and so forth and so on. Um, and, and these have had a, a long and a troubled history. The uh, the authors who were assigned to were historians initially, produced their volumes, but most of the volumes went to law professors. And law professors, um, people in my profession, typically don't write books. <laughs> we write articles. And so there were enormous delays, just uh, enormous um uh, 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 instances where people like the overall editor of the series was Paul Freund. He never produced his volume in 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, so uh, my volume was given to someone named Alexander Bickle in 1953. Uh, he never wrote it uh, for the next 30 years. When he died, uh, it was given to a law professor named uh, Robert Cover, who uh, was actually my professor. Uh, again, cover never wrote the volume, and when he died, it was given to me. So I received my volume, as it were, as a matter of grace. The editor of the series, who's appointed by the president, 
uh, called me up, and at that time it was Stanley Katz, and he said, uh, would you like the assignment of writing the Holmes Devise, the more or less official history of the Supreme Court when William Howard Taft was Chief Justice, 1921 to 30? Uh, and I want to say that uh, when I got that assignment in 1988, and I've taken my time in, the, <laughs> in drafting this, and I, I want to say also I doubled my life insurance before undertaking this. So. <laughs> I was about to say, this is it seems like something of a jinx project. I mean, who, whoever gets it ends up passing away before they can work on it. Exactly, exactly <laughs> so. So I, uh, I thought I had drawn the short straw. Um, the Taft Court is um, was the court during the 1920s. And the, the United States and its law was in a state of really terrible confusion um, at the time. And so it produced a body of jurisprudence, which, let me just say, is not well remembered or uh, uh, salient um, today. If you ask most uh, law school professors or students now, they'd be lucky if they can name 10 or 12 decisions by the Taft Court. Some are very prominent, but most are not. And so I was working with material, which was to me uh, rather strange. So I took my time, as did my previous uh, assignees uh, um, for this project. Uh, and um, uh, for many years, I was an administrator. I was dean at the Yale Law School. But when I finished the deanship, I was determined to finish the book. But in truth, what allowed me to finish the book was the election of Trump. Um, because it gave for me a frame for how I could organize the material in the book. The period that we're living in now is actually quite similar to the 1920s. So in the first place, uh, Warren Harding was elected president in 1920, and his platform, you might remember, was to restore the country to what he called normalcy. And what he meant was to undo the massive changes which had occurred in the country as a result of World War One, and we'll discuss that later in the in the podcast. But Harding wanted to undo all the administrative um, innovations, and in particular, he wanted to restore the country to the economic principles of laissez-faire and conservatism, which had obtained before the Progressive Era, which was which culminated in uh, World War One. Uh, and so to that end, uh, he appointed four new justices of the Supreme Court in less than 15 months. And think now of Trump um, uh, appointing three justices in an effort to push the court to the right. This was very much Harding's explicit agenda. And they created a, a jurisprudence uh, which revived what we call Lochnerism, which is substantive due process, which is the courts reviewing with a jaundiced eye social and economic legislation, and they constructed a conservative jurisprudence which um, overreached and led to the crisis of the 1930s with which contemporaries are much more aware. So we have a push toward a conservative court, and um, this is occurring in a context in which there is intense, intense polarization in the United States. We think of the country now as polarized, but just imagine that in 1920, it was the one and only time Congress never reapportioned itself based on a census. And it didn't do that because there was a conflict over prohibition between wets and dries. And the census was point in that census would 
um, point to increased representation to the cities, which were wet, which wanted to decrease the severity of prohibition. And Congress, which was dominated by dries, refused to give wets that new power and so didn't reapportion itself. That is the degree of polarization over prohibition, which was an amendment to the Constitution, the 18th Amendment, and which was flagrantly disobeyed uh, in every urban center in the, in the country. So the question was, before the court, was how do you create law that could be recognized as legitimate law in the midst of a country which was so intensely polarized it couldn't even reapportion itself? And that's very similar to the issue which the court faces today, as it must decide questions and throw them into the middle of a country that is divided red and blue in ways that uh, almost certainly what the court decides will, by one side or the other, be dismissed as merely what we would call the personal predilection of the justices rather than as law. So the challenge to the Taft Court was how do you create law? something legitimately recognized as law in these circumstances. And these became the organizing themes of the book. It, it was fascinating to see how you divided that into these narratives. I, 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 I'm a fan of the series, and I, I find it's very interesting how each author approaches it just a little bit differently and how your volumes are, are, are that uh, respect very distinct from the other volumes. I mean, they're all high quality scholarship, but you have an approach that you you where you take your you develop these four narratives, and I was wondering if you could perhaps explain those narratives and how you use them to frame your analysis of the Taft Court and and how you went about that analysis in the book. Well, the first thing I should say in response to your question is that you know I come out of. Uh, I have a PhD in American studies, American civilization at Harvard. So my background is really in literary criticism, and I am very much attracted to the question of the cultural study of law. To me, law is a cultural artifact. And the question is how that artifact is crafted and emerges from the legal, the technical legal materials that are before a court. And in, in that, I would say I differ from the average law professor who tends to see law as more or less an autonomous system and is many of the volumes in the series are concerned with doctrine, this technical doctrine. I, in this book, am much more concerned with how doctrine is responds to and emerges from the cultural controversies uh, in which it's created. Uh, and I tend to see that as a process that is not as both historical and, and literary. And so in that in those ways, this volume of the of the Holmes device is quite is distinctive because I come from that background. And when I tried to answer the question of how the court created law in the middle of polarization, um, what I saw was that there um, was first law gets its legitimacy as law by being embedded in a convincing narrative, in a narrative which itself creates um, uh, legitimacy. Uh, if one wants to think about a background for this approach, one would think of a famous article by Robert Cover, my predecessor in this volume called Nomos and Narrative, um, in which he shows how nomos law emerges out of narrative. So there were four distinct narratives that the justices of the court um, deployed. Um, the first, which was the most common narrative and is almost invisible to us um, today, was that law is um, the spontaneous self-ordering of society itself. Um, law was 
um, the product of uh, customs, usages, traditions, and it's the function of a tribunal like the Supreme Court to recognize the traditions and customs and usages of those to whom the law applies and to give them the status of law. Um, this is what we would technically call common law, that when a common law judge decides a case, he says what's reasonable, um, what would a person, what would be the appropriate thing for a person to do or not do? So, for example, in our current law of privacy, we say you can't disclose a public, a private fact to the public in a way that the reasonable person would find highly offensive. This notion of the reasonable person, which exists throughout our law, is the remnant of this notion that law itself emerges from the customs and assumptions and what Bordeaux might call the habitus of the population. So uh, this was the standard conservative account of what law was. Judges were viewed as experts in the customs and traditions of the people, and legislatures were viewed as, uh, as one Supreme Court justice said, just a crowd of people that happened to gather at the legislature at the Capitol on a, on a, on a working day. Uh, they were a mere majority. So democracy didn't have any particular legitimating force. The force came from habits. Judges were the experts in traditions and usages. And so judges were more important than legislation. That's why you had rather free um, findings of unconstitutionality for legislation that judges found to be, quote unquote, unreasonable. And this view on the Taft Court was stated with in its greatest purity, um, by James C. McReynolds, who was the most conservative justice, but he was just speaking for what would have been, say, accepted wisdom in the 1890s. Uh, but every justice on the court in one way or another understood this and applied this view about where what was a major source of law, including constitutional law. You know, a, a moderns, we understand law to come from a very different source, from the positive authority of, an in, of, uh, of the state that enacts law through legislation. And when we think that way, we are thinking in the language of Oliver Wendell Holmes. So Oliver Wendell Holmes is a great American uh, jurisprudential thinker. And his major insight, which he came to in the 1870s and the 1880s, was that America as, as a country was agonistic. It did not have any singular set of customs, any singular set of traditions. What you had were conflicts, conflicts between labor and capital, conflicts between urban and rural, conflicts between working class and, uh, and owners and so forth and so on. And he saw society, he was very influenced by Darwin in this as, uh, as a site of existential struggle for survival between competing groups. So, for a judge to say this is the law because this is the spontaneous self-ordering of society uh, was a myth and law couldn't rest on that. So Holmes' analysis of what law was, um, was that if society was a, was an existential struggle, uh, then the major um, point of law was to avoid out and out conflict, was to avoid war, was to avoid violence and force and uh, create processes of orderly change which could respond to um, the different uh, emerging interests in the society. And the institution that did that was the legislature. So for Holmes, the legislature was the authentic mouthpiece of the state because it expressed the dominant opinion of the time. And what was sovereign was the dominant opinion. 
That's what made law. So we call now Holmes's perspective positivism, and it is the exact opposite of the form of thinking, the common law form of thinking uh, that James C. McReynolds um, had. So Holmes would be inclined to defer to legislative enactments, whereas McReynolds would say, is the legislative enacted reasonable? And it's for a judge to determine that. So those are two different narratives um, which are present in the 1920s. There's a third narrative, which was um, very um, prominent and salient in the 1920s. It's exemplified by Chief Justice Taft. And this narrative is very interesting to me because it is like... Um, what we would now call neoliberalism avant the lettre, or like a modern law and economics professor, what it, what Taft uh, um, said is that what keeps Americans together is the promise of prosperity. No matter what you know, a legislature may superficially decree, what Americans really wanted at base was economic growth. They wanted to become more prosperous. And of course, in the 1920s, in the go-go 20s, this was a very convincing narrative. And what it meant in practice was that courts should protect the constitutional rights of property, which is what created prosperity. So it wasn't the protection of democracy, which was uh, important for the court. It wasn't the protection of what a legislature happened to do or not do. It wasn't um, the protection of custom or usage. It was the protective protection of those property rights and the incentives which they created uh, that would allow capitalism to flourish and, uh, and the economic pie to expand. And so justices who viewed, who had this view of constitutional law, lexically put the economic before the political. They viewed the primary function of the Constitution to be the protection of property rights, which were necessary for material growth. Um, and they would evaluate legislation to see whether they unduly impacted um, property rights. It was a very pragmatic evaluation of legislation. And as opposed to these three narratives, um, there was a fourth narrative, which was held alone by Justice uh, Louis Brandeis. Uh, for all practical purposes, as a justice, Brandeis invents this narrative. It was stunning for me to see this because we take it now so much for granted. But what Brandeis said is that the political is prior to the economic we define neoliberalism as saying the market displaces politics and the needs of the market take priority, and that would be associated with Taft or George Sutherland. Um, Brandeis took the opposite tack, and he said it's the political which is prior to the economic, and through our political mechanisms of decision-making, we decide what kind of economy we want and how to allocate property rights. And we do that through a form of political association that he called democracy. The theme that we are, uh, democracy was of course a major theme in the progressive era. And, and it was Brandeis who took um, this theme and began to unpack its uh, implications for constitutional law which were many. One of the implication was that every time a court disturbed a legislation, a legislative enactment, it was setting aside the results of democratic processes. So whereas Holmes deferred to uh, legislation because he wanted to ensure orderly processes of change, 
and Holmes had no theory of human flourishing. Brandeis wanted to defer to legislative enactments because they were the product of democracy. And the central function of the Constitution was to promote democracy. And therefore, democracy and its enactments were to be respected. And this introduces um, so uh, a major difference between Holmes and Brandeis. Um, Holmes, who had no theory of human flourishing, would defer to legislation, whatever the legislation was, whereas Brandeis would defer to legislation so long as it did not impair democracy. So Brandeis had a theory of democratic rights to which courts, which courts should enforce, which Holmes did not. And you can see that in a case, a very famous case, uh, a case which is still very prevalent called Meyer versus Nebraska. In this case, as a product of the hysteria that attended World War I, the state of Nebraska had banned uh, the teaching of German as a foreign language. And uh, this is challenged under the Substantive Due Process Clause. And um, Holmes says we defer, it's a legislative enactment. And if they think that German is a bad language, we have to defer to that. Uh, whereas Brandeis says, no, education is necessary for democracy. The freedom to learn is necessary for democracy. And so we set this aside because of this is a legislative enactment, which is inconsistent with what democracy requires. The way that Brandeis formulates that problem, we take for granted now, but it did not exist in the 1920s, except in the opinions of Brandeis. What you describe with those four narratives are is the intellectual uh, discourse that was taking place on the court. And, and it gets to the, the fact that even though, as you point out, this is not oftentimes one of the more prominent periods uh, in terms of the history of the Supreme Court, in terms of the attention it receives, we're talking about some very remarkable individuals, and in many ways, no more so than Taft himself. I mean, he is, to this day, the only uh, former American president ever to sit on the Supreme Court. And as you just, you spend considerable uh, amount of space in, in, in your uh, in your book talking about this extraordinary contribution he makes, I, I was really fascinated to think about, because you know, I, I never really thought about it this way. You, you, you basically, he, he practically killed himself because in, in his job as chief justice, because he was doing so much to not just in terms of American law, in terms of the various sessions of the court, but in terms of what he was doing for the federal judiciary more generally. Yeah. So, I mean, to understand Taft, you have to understand someone who was in the first place an extraordinarily good administrator. And he was also somebody who was a terribly bad politician. Samuel Gompers, who was the head of the AFL, once described Taft as a very large body surrounded by politicians. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and uh, 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 so Taft, of, of course, uh, uh, is a lawyer. He's a, he was a judge on the Ohio court. He becomes solicitor general in his 30s for the United States. He becomes a judge on the Sixth Circuit. Then he becomes the governor of the Philippines. And then Roosevelt takes him into his cabinet as uh, secretary of, of war, where he builds the Panama Canal. And then Roosevelt hands him the presidency in 1908 on a silver platter saying, this is my successor. I love William Howard Taft. We're brothers. And um, the very famous story in American politics, T.R. and uh, Teddy Roosevelt and Taft have a falling out. Uh, and uh, for reasons which are actually very unclear, but they, uh, I think basically Teddy Roosevelt wanted to become president again. Uh, and so he and Taft go to war in 1912. They split the Republican vote and Woodrow Wilson becomes, um, becomes the president. 
And uh, Taft's major interest after his presidency is, uh, he's got a number of major interests. One is the administration of justice, but a sec he becomes the president of the ABA, for example. Uh, uh, a second is uh, world peace. He'd always been for arbitration. So he allies with uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, in terms of supporting the League of Nations, which no other prominent Republican would do, which is one reason why he's not nominated by the Republican Party to become uh, president in 1920, because he had alienated the isolationist wing of the Republican Party. But it gave him a kind of nonpartisan uh, stature. Uh, and uh, the third is um, during the war, during World War One, one of the immense uh, innovations that Woodrow Wilson introduces is they needed a national labor policy. <clears throat> of course, the war is uh, draining uh, workers uh, because they're going becoming soldiers. Immigration, which had been you know the great way of filling and make uh, filling factories and making labor in the United States cheap, is cut off because there's war and there's submarine warfare. Ships can't go across the oceans. Um, this in part causes the great migration of African Americans from the South to the North. Um, uh, um, but it also means that uh, work is high paying and in much in demand because there's great uh, need to produce wartime materials. And so the labor situation is completely uh, unstable. People are just leaving jobs to go for better paying jobs. So they need a national labor policy that will stabilize the workforce to produce um, um, to produce. Uh, wartime materials. Now, Taft, when he was a judge on the Sixth Circuit, was known as a injunction judge. The federal courts in the 1890s created something called the labor injunction. So if you're a, a, a railroad or you're a factory owner and your workers don't like you, they go on strike and you go into court and you say, I need an injunction against picketing or I need an injunction to get the workers back to work or whatever it is. And uh, so the courts had become the um, mechanism by which capital inflicted great pains on labor uh, through using court injunctions, which laid down rules for masses of people who were not before the court, but created basically national labor policy. It was done through Article Three judges. And Taft was the pioneer, the person who um, uh, conceptualized what labor injunctions could and couldn't do and how courts should go about doing them. And as a result, he earned the undying hostility of um, organized labor. So the AFL opposed him, most labor organizations opposed him in 1908, uh, and uh, he was regarded as um, extremely hostile to labor. Well, in, in uh, 1917, when uh, the United States goes to war, Taft becomes the head, the co-head of the National Labor National uh, Labor Board, which um, is co-led uh, co by a guy named Walsh, who's a labor lawyer. And Walsh and Taft create the most liberal forms of labor regulation. They have living wages. They permit unions to organize. They do all sorts of things which are not only contrary to Supreme Court precedent, but things that labor had been working to try to achieve for years and years and years. And this creates an enormous spurt of unionization in America after World War I. But it also, and most importantly, um, endears Taft uh, to the union. So that, whereas uh, Taft would have been like um, anathema to American unions in 1920, uh, he had earned himself the trust of uh, American labor uh, by that time because of his work on the National uh, Labor Board during World War I. So Taft um, re 
um, abilitates himself after his uh, terrible loss in 1912. He only carries two states in the 1912 election. Uh, but uh, by 1920, he's a national figure who's acceptable to almost all parties. He's acceptable to Democrats because of his support of Wilson and the League of Nations. He's uh, acceptable to labor because he's produced these amazingly liberal wartime uh, labor policies. Uh, and he is the perfect figure for Harding to pick to restore the court to normalcy because he's a conservative, but he has the trust of the whole nation. Uh, uh, our ambassador to uh, Great Britain at the time, Harvey, says Taft is our, our worst licked, most loved ex-president. That's his expression <laughs> in 1920. So Harding picks him in 21 to become the new chief justice. And Taft is, uh, of course, the only person in the history of the country to go from being president to becoming the head of the Article Three branch of government. And he brings an entirely different perspective than any judge that had ever had before him. And he brings a dense network of political uh, connections. And he brings enormous political energy as a terrific administrator and a reformer. And he basically reshapes the Article Three branch of government while he's chief justice. He changes the office of chief justice into something closer to an English Lord Chancellor than to anything that any American judge had ever done before. So Taft is regularly visiting with Harding and Coolidge and a little bit with Hoover, less with Hoover, to give advice about um, uh, legislation, to, to pick judges, to... Um, to talk politics. And it's well known. He's in the office of the presidents like all the time. And he is in the he's in the halls of Congress lob proposing and lobbying new legislation constantly. Um, and no chief justice had ever done this before. It's an overtly political um, stance and one which judicial ethics would have required most American judges not to do. But Taft um, did it. And he changed our notion of the way judges relate to political processes as a result. And he is enormously effective in these activities. The first thing he does is he passes uh, the Judiciary Act of 1922, which um, completely changes the nature of um, Article Three, uh, the Article Three branch of government. So before this act, uh, federal judges were each appointed to their district, and they were local lords in their district. They could be versed by an appellate court, but no one told the judge how to run his courtroom uh, in his district. He was uh, he was in control, and he ran his own docket the way he wanted to run his own docket. Uh, and the mechanisms for coordinating at cross judges didn't exist. So what Taft um, does is he creates a judicial council, um, which consists of the chief justice and the heads of each of the federal circuits, and they meet every year, and they review statistics to determine which districts uh, are in arrears, which districts are keeping up with their doctic, dockets, how should we transfer judges between districts in order to um, fulfill the national function of the Article Three branch, which is to solve and settle national disputes all over the country, not just district by district, but as a whole. And uh, this was a radically new concept of Article Three judges as a cohesive branch of government to be governed by the chief justice and the judicial council in much the way the president governed the bureaucracies of, created by uh, Article Two 
um, organizations. And, you know, as a result of TAP now, the Chief Justice gives a state of the judiciary speech, just like the President gives a state of the union speech. This idea that the Chief Justice is responsible for the functioning of federal justice, this comes out of Taft. And it comes out of this innovation in particular. So that's one. So second, uh, when uh, when Taft became Chief Justice, he, he realized that the, the Supreme Court was very much behind on its docket. Uh, and in part, this was because of the huge number of cases coming to uh, the court through prohibition. Um, through the uh, through the many issues that arose uh, because of World War One, uh, and the court was having increasingly increasing difficulty keeping up with its caseload, and uh, Taft um, saw that the only way to solve this problem was uh, to give the Supreme Court control of its docket. And this may sound like a technical issue, but actually it's a profound change in the nature of the court. The, when, when Taft became Chief Justice in June of 1921, the Supreme Court was basically a final appellate tribunal. So you could bring a case in the district court. It could be whatever the result, it could be appealed to an appellate court. And what whatever the result of that was, is it could be appealed for a second a second time to the Supreme Court of the United States. And for the most part, the court would have to take it. So the court had an enormous number of basically trivial cases um, to decide. And it had the legitimacy of basically settling for once and all a case. And that was uh, where its authority came from. Uh, but uh, what Taft said was the court should decide which cases to accept and which cases not to accept for its docket. So you have a right, he said, to a trial and to an appeal. And after that, the Supreme Court should only accept cases which contain important questions of law for the country, either because the different federal circuits were deciding them in a different way, or the federal courts and the state courts were disagreeing, or because the issue was of such importance to the country that the Supreme Court should take it. And um, uh, uh, Taft drafted legislation to this um, for this end. And like the uh, Judiciary Act of 1922, he lobbied it through Congress. He called senators, he called representatives, got them to vote on it at the, through his rather dense network of political contacts. And in 1925, um, the Congress completely changed the nature of our Supreme Court. So before it had been a final appellate tribunal, it just decided cases. Afterwards, it became the manager of the system of development of federal law. It picked basically, again, I'm simplifying here, but basically it picked only those cases it wanted to hear so that it could engineer the developing shape uh, and contours of um, federal law in the United States, including constitutional law. And uh, this, can, as, as contemporaries noted, this changed the court from a final appellate tribunal into something closer to a ministry of justice that was responsible for shaping the ongoing development of how uh, federal law unfolded. And this meant, among many, many other things, that the authority of the court changed. It no longer had the authority of just having to decide a particular case. It had the authority of prospectively making what constitutional law should be in this country. And that um, has had ramifications which are quite controversial that we're living with today. Um, it put the court in dialogue with public opinion in ways that um, it had never been um, before. A profound change in the nature of the court.
So that's his second innovation. His third innovation was to say, um, because he was first and foremost a judicial administrator, um, the court needed a courtroom. It needed a courthouse. The court was in the basement of Congress. It had no rooms. It had no chambers for its justices. It had no room for its files. Uh, Taft said the files are stacked so high you need an airplane to reach them. Uh, <laughs> and he personally lobbied uh, and uh, and um, got Congress to approve $10 million to build a new Supreme Court building, which is the building that we live with um, today. This was designed um, by Taft in uh, connection with Cass Gilbert, who was the architect. It was lobbied through Congress by Taft. It was his personal project. And um, it allowed the Supreme Court for the first time in its history to get out from under the thumb of Congress and to move into its own quarters. These are just stupendous achievements. Add to this that Taft was responsible for much other legislation. He was responsible for vetting almost all of Harding and Coolidge's uh, nominees to the district, um, to federal bench. Um, they would run it by him. He would he would uh, try to determine who was and was not qualified to become federal judges. This became increasingly fraught as the decade progressed, but he had a large role in that, a large role in vetting uh, nominees to the Supreme Court. He was he really was outsized in every way in the way in which he reshaped the role of Chief Justice. It really is fascinating how you feature all that, and yet so much of that is 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 overlooked. I mean, I, the Taft's involvement with the Supreme Court building is the one with which I was personally most familiar. But I was simply I, I was completely unaware of that that second major development you described, which to me is so central to how we view the Supreme Court in our country today. And, and, and to think that Taft, more than any other single individual, is the person responsible for that is something I've never seen associated with him before now. Yeah, I mean, when when uh, uh, Felix Frankfurter said about Taft, he should have a reputation second only to Oliver Ellsworth, who drafted the initial 1789 uh, statute, which created the federal courts as the architect of of um, of federal courts. And what that tells you is you get a great reputation as a Supreme Court justice, not as a judicial reformer or as an architect. But if you're good as a justice, you write great opinions. And for that, Taft is not well known and deservedly not well known. I would like to uh, shift now to uh, what takes up the, the the second half of your study, which is the areas of law that you address. Now, you don't go through uh, the cases uh, uh, session by session, and you, and you don't uh, try to cover every single uh, case they decided. You you instead uh, create four categories, and 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 it really is interesting to to how you approach it in the sense of saying. You know, these are the areas that of, of of jurisprudence and of law and, and in some ways of 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 you know federal power that they're talking about. And I was wondering if you could perhaps walk us through that categorization and and, and some of the key decisions that were made and how they reflect uh, the Taft Court jurisprudence and some of the the uh, those narratives that you uh, described uh, earlier. So the um, I. I... When I became the author of this volume, uh, it was thought that one reason why uh, the previous volumes had never been written, (laughs) that there were such long delays, 
um, was that the it, it, the the editor at the time, Paul Freund, told authors they had to account for every case. They had to be comprehensive. It had to be like an encyclopedia of what happened. And that's really an impossible task because, you know, you're dealing with thousands of decisions. And uh, it's very hard to organize that in any way that's readable or any way you want to write it. So the editor at the time uh, was Stanley Katz, and he said, become thematic. And I picked um, four major themes. The first theme was uh, the review of social and economic legislation. The second was prohibition. The third was federalism, state-local relations. And the fourth was uh, labor and race. And I had very uh, specific reasons for picking each of these. Um, the first uh, theme is uh, refers to the fact that the Taft co Court, if it is known at all now, it's known for reviving Lochnerism, which is to say a, a hostility to social and economic legislation on the basis of what lawyers would call substantive due process. That is to say, it, it, if a regulation of uh, the economy is viewed uh, by uh, judges as unreasonable, then it is also unconstitutional. So an example would be Nebraska had a statute fixing the minimum and maximum sizes for loaves of bread, and the court said that's unreasonable. You can't do that. They throw it out. Pennsylvania had a statute saying you can't use shoddy, which is repurposed uh, stuffing uh, for mattresses and for furniture because it's unhealthy. The court thought that was unreasonable and it threw it out. And you can begin to see that a court that was uh, hostile to social and economic legislation, as for example, our modern court is increasingly hostile, can create great tensions with uh, state legislatures and with Congress who want to regulate in the interest of the common good. And then the question is, why should a court be over be able to overrule um, uh, uh, legislatures when it comes to an understanding of what's reasonable or what's in the common good. And so I tell the story of how the court revived Lochnerism, of the way in which it saw itself as doing that. For example, it strikes down a minimum wage legislation. It strikes down all forms of price control, saying you can't do that. And the, the large interpretation here is that this has something to do with the reaction to World War One. World War One is a massive massive change in American politics. And it has been, its effects, its ongoing effects have been, to my mind, completely untheorized. Uh, and uh, what what happened in World War I is a, a country which was still basically in the grip of laissez-faire, in which uh, it was viewed as inappropriate unless there was a massive need for the state to be involved in the market. The market took priority, freedom in the market took priority. Even during the progressive period, um, uh, legislatures were cautious and courts were um, still reviewing, although with some degree of um, more hesitancy um, than prior, say, to 1912. Uh, it's often said at the time uh, that when Theodore Roosevelt ran for the presidency in 1912 on the grounds of what he called um, the recall of judicial decisions, meaning that if a court decided something was unconstitutional, the population, the Congress, the state legislatures could say it is constitutional. You got the Constitution wrong. The court took this as a signal better back off um, being too strict in its review of social and economic legislation. And um, so in, in, in a country in which this is you know, very problematic, suddenly it's engaged in total war. 
and it realizes it can only win World War I if it converts the whole economy into a wartime footing. And so Roosevelt, I mean, uh, Wilson takes control of the railroads. He nationalizes them. He takes control of steamships. He takes control of the, of the telegraph lines. He imposes price controls on all aspects of the economy. He creates a national labor policy. It is total federal, not merely state, but federal control of the national economy in, uh, uh, and more intimate regulation than the federal government has ever had before or since. And this comes suddenly. And we're in competition with Prussian autocracy, which has um, completely revamped the economy to the production of wartime materials. And we realize we need to do the same. And uh, we were in that and we're doing that um, with uh, Bernard Baruch leading the um, the way and uh, the war is suddenly over in November of 1918 and Wilson says what have I done Wilson the new freedom Wilson who wants deregulation um, uh, uh, dissolves almost all these wartime uh, agencies as uh, Luckenberg said the Wilson administration dissolved in a riot of reaction and uh, 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 the country was horrified and what it had to do in order to win the war. This leads to a Republican landslide in the 1918 elections and ultimately to Republican dominance in the 1920s um, because the, the, the nation was responding to this enormous assertion of federal power with revulsion, with revulsion. Uh, and uh, uh, so the Taft court is a court that's appointed uh, as Harding would say, uh, to return the country to normalcy, meaning restoring the freedom of the market from these regulatory interventions. But it, it, although it's often said that the war killed wartime progressivism in the United States, that's actually a, a, a deep oversimplification because what the country learned during World War One was um, how to regulate at a national scale. It never had these capacities before. World War One was where statisticians and economists went into the government and created the statistical and econometric tools by which they could measure and shape the economy. Didn't have that before, really. Um, uh, so um, suddenly they come out of the uh, of the war and they want to return to normalcy, but they realize that they have created these administrative tools which are necessary and could continue to be necessary in the 1920s. So the best example of that is the Transportation Act of 1920. Um, before, railroads were always regulated in the sense of your price is too high, you have to, you know, you have to reduce your prices. And it was regulated chiefly at the state level, although there was an ICC that uh, Interstate Commerce Commission at the federal level, which had some responsibilities. Transportation Act refuses to maintain the nationalization of the railroads, but it subjects all railroads, intrastate as well as interstate, to national control by the ICC, whose job is to set rates in a way that would maintain the health of the railroad system. So it's to maintain rates rather than to lower rates. Um, and the object is uh, to have a national form of regulation that would not have been possible or even conceivable without World War I. Taft Court fully supports that. So the Taft Court is a place where some of these new technological innovations of administration and regulation uh, are supported and maintained, and others are rejected in the name of returning to normalcy. So it's a very complicated picture that I paint of basically um, a country in trauma. 
The country was traumatized by what it had to do in World War I. It recognized the benefit and necessity of doing it, but it didn't want to face it. And so the result was an, a very uncertain jurisprudence that tilted toward the conservative, but that had pockets where it was really quite what you would call progressive. The changes in antitrust law, for example, would have those characteristics. So that's the painting in part one on social and economic legislation. The second part is prohibition. The, the one wartime regulation that stayed in effect was prohibition. So this was the national government being involved in intimate details of everybody's drinking throughout the country. Suddenly, the national state was charged with the administration of liquor throughout the United States. It was no way prepared to do that. No way prepared to do that. Um, it didn't have the police force. It didn't have the resources. No one really wanted to spend the money that it would cost to have a national regulation that was effective prohibition. So this is impacting the country at two different levels. One level is regulation, positive regulation. And the second is federal regulation. This is the federal government displacing the states doing that. So prohibition causes a crisis both in federalism and also the idea of positive law. Remember, I distinguish positive law that Holmes theorizes from law is custom and tradition. So um, prohibition is the form of regulation which exactly contravenes custom and tradition. The drinking habits of urban ethnic masses, the drinking habits of um, many, many people in the country are overridden by prohibition, which has the sanction of the rule of recognition of positive law being the 18th Amendment to the Constitution. So what do you do about this, con about this tension? And it, it produces really interesting jurisprudential effects um, on the Taft Court. So from a positive point of view, from Holmes's point of view, he says, fine, this is what the majority, the dominant opinion wants. This is what I enforce. And he's all for it. Um, and uh, from the conservative point of view, conservatives believe in custom and tradition, and they believe that the law is undermining itself by contravening custom and tradition. Think here of uh, Babbitt, you know, Sinclair Lewis's Babbitt, where, uh, you know, he's having guests for dinner and he says, anyone ready to break the law? Meaning serve contest. <laughs> it's like everybody was breaking the law flagrantly. This is a crisis of the legitimacy of law. And uh, uh, half the conservative justices, Sutherland, Butler, McReynolds, say the only way we can maintain the legitimacy of the 18th Amendment is to interpret it in light of custom and tradition, which prohibition itself contravenes. So they were highly um, antagonistic to prohibition on the conservative front. On the other hand, three justices, Taft was the leader among them, uh, but included Sanford and Vandervanter, said the rule of law is itself at stake here. So here we're going to turn positivist. We're going to say if people can just break the law, that's uh, that puts courts and law in an impossible position. So we're going to double down on the positive law of prohibition, forget custom forget tradition, this is positive law. And this is the emergence of a tradition in the United States of a positive, of a positivism that's uh, uh, on the conservative side. Um, it doesn't exist apart from this moment in prohibition until William Rehnquist becomes a justice who says basically, whatever is the positive law is the positive law and conservative conservatism in this country in the time of Reagan and um, and Rehnquist is let the let the legislatures do whatever they want. That would have been 
the liberal position in the 1920s, uh, it becomes the conservative position with Rehnquist, and it's foreshadowed by these three conservative justices who, uh, by emphasizing the positive law of prohibition, paved the way for the court's uh, acceptance of the administrative state in the 1930s. The administrative state is, by hypothesis, the state that is positive law and only positive law, not custom and tradition. And uh, the effect on Brandeis is really quite interesting. Brandeis um, is a justice who believes in democracy. Prohibition is the choice of democracy. So he is highly dry. He wants to enforce most prohibition. But he also sees that the excesses and overzealousness of the prohibition enforcement has, um, has discredited government itself. And he and a number of progressives see um, come to an insight that progressivism can't just mean state action. It has to mean legitimate state action. And it's not enough for action to be legitimate that is enacted by a legislature. If the legislature contravenes accepted standards of dignity or accepted standards of uh, privacy, uh, it, it can lose its warrant to govern, its mandate from heaven, as the Chinese might say. Um, and so Brandeis began to develop this idea in his dissent in a famous case called Olmsted about whether wiretapping was uh, uh, was uh, constitutional and whether the state had to obey basic norms of decency. Brandeis develops this, begins to develop this notion that we should interpret the Constitution to include norms of privacy, include norms of dignity. And if we don't do that, the government itself, however democratically enacted, might lose its legitimacy. And this form of liberalism, this liberal communitarianism, revives again in the 1960s and 70s in a case like Griswold versus Connecticut, um, uh, basically saying um, you, you, you can't ban things which are, uh, it, it would be um, against basic norms to do. So it forces this, it force, it force creates um, uh, forms of jurisprudential thinking, which is, are not going to reemerge until the 70s and 60s when the administrative state's already well into place and, and accepted. So I use the prohibition section to talk about positive law and its relationship to law of custom, uh, law of tradition, uh, of legitimation outside of what a positivist would call the rule of recognition. The third theme is federalism. And here, you know, prohibition causes a major crisis in federalism. World War I created a major crisis in federalism. By the 1920s, everyone understood that what are the states doing here? What is their basis? Uh, but at the same time, we are a country that requires state sovereignty and a very complicated relationship between the states and the federal government. The, the Taft Court had no way to create a convincing counter-federalism. So its federalism jurisprudence is a mush. And it leads to very interesting jurisprudential issues about positive law, et cetera. So uh, a big uh, one of the initiatives of the Republican uh, Supreme Court since the 1880s and 1890s was to create a national market and to protect the national market. And it used uh, many devices to do this. Substantive constitutional law was one, but also what we call general federal common law. So federal courts can hear disputes between citizens of different states. That's called diversity jurisdiction. And the law which they used to settle that um, ha was until the 1930s, until a case called Erie, what's called general federal common law. They create their own law and say, you know, what a contract is or isn't, it's for federal courts to say. 
Holmes hated federal general federal common law because he said law is always positive and no one ever gave federal courts the right to make law. So the, the common law to be applied is the common law of the state. That is that law is governing the transaction. So there should only be state or federal law. But by creating general federal common law, federal courts were saying we speak not as uh, officers of the of a federal uh, government or officers of a state government. We speak as agents of the American people. And uh, the federalism chapter um, traces this voice. It's a voice of constitutional authority to speak for the American people and not just for the federal constitution, not just for um, the states, but for the American people almost before they had a government, the way a common law court would speak for customs and traditions as having authority. And this is a voice of constitutional um, um, decision-making that we in the modern era have lost. We don't even recognize it. So we speak about, for example, originalism or not originalism. Originalism is a form of positivism. It says the federal constitution is only what the federal uh, law is. It's only speaking for the federal government. It's always speaking for the text of the constitution, which is a federal document. The, the top court would never have thought of itself that way. So to get at that subtle distinction, that's the brunt of the federalism part. And then the last part is labor and race. And here there's a very interesting contrast. Um, labor relations were terrible. Uh, in 1919, more workers were on strike than in any other year in the United States, in the history of the United States. Um, in part, this is because after the labor controls of World War I, American employers were determined to reassert control over their labor force. So they were really um, quite aggressive in uh, busting up unions and unions were quite aggressive in defending their their gains that they had made during the World War One. Um, it, it led to terrible um, labor unrest, which continued throughout the first number of years of the of the of the decade, the Taft court understood itself to be speaking in a common law court as speaking as a voice, not of federal law, particularly, but of, of the common law, either through um, uh, diversity jurisdiction or through federal antitrust law, which incorporated the common law. Uh, and it used this as a basis for intervening with injunctions to settle label disputes. And the court thought that it had done this, but really it, it had alienated labor deeply from um, from federal courts, labor viewed federal judges as corporate minions who were doing the bidding of their corporate masters. And this leads to um, the Norris LaGuardia Act of under the Hoover administration in 1932, stripping federal courts of their jurisdiction. And it was quite controversial how to hear labor uh, cases. Um, and this contrasts really interestingly with race. You know, the 1920s was the time when Southern apartheid gets entrenched and the Taft Court is not about to displace it. The Taft Court speaks um, for the usages and traditions and the common law way and in particular the racial instincts of the American people and allows all forms of racist laws to um, to thrive, including reaffirming Plessy versus Ferguson in Mississippi in a case called Gong Lum. And um, I managed to find accounts of uh, arguments in the court 
um, over the uh, alien um, alien land ownership statutes in the West. These were statutes which Pacific Coast states enacted to say that you could not own land, real property, unless you were a citizen or were a naturalized citizen or had a path to naturalization. Uh, and basically, this was done to exclude um, uh, uh, Chinese and Japanese and Indians who could not be naturalized because they were not white persons and only white persons could uh, um, be naturalized under the statute at the time. Literally, that's what the statute said, white persons. Uh, and so... Um, um, if you look at some of the arguments, the court says, well, why are you passing these laws? And the attorney general of California at the time, Ulysses Siegel, says, this is a white man's country. The court knew perfectly well what it was doing, and it was not about to displace um, the racial instincts of the American people. So unlike prohibition, where a justice like Taft will say, I don't care what your instincts and customs are, positive law has to govern. In the context of race, Taft was willing to, and I have long discussions of why he was willing, um, to allow the positive law of the 14th and 15th Amendments to go unenforced because he thought that um, you have to placate the sensibilities of powerful Southern white elites. And unless you did that, um, the situation to blacks would be intolerable. So he is um, he has exactly opposite positions with regard to the positive law of the 18th Amendment than of the 15th Amendment, which would have allowed blacks to vote in the South. And Taft knows full well that they're not voting um, in the South. And this situation, interestingly, does not change until the 1930s. And if you ask why it changes, the book contains a, 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 an hypothesis. Um, Edward Sanford on the Taft Court dies in, uh, in uh, uh, I think it's April 1930. Uh, he gets up from the dentist chair. He suffers from uremic poisoning, and he becomes incoherent. He collapses. He dies. And uh, Hoover sends in to replace him the nomination of John J. Parker, who's a judge on the Fourth Circuit. And uh, labor can't stand Parker because he had issued injunctions against labor union and labor organizing. And uh, the NAACP hates Parker because when he had uh, run for political office in North Carolina, he basically said everyone agrees blacks shouldn't be involved in elections. They shouldn't vote and they shouldn't concern themselves with this. This is really white man stuff. Uh, and uh, the blacks uh, and the NAACP conducts a, a usually effective campaign uh, against Parker. And because of the great migration caused by the World War One, because of the Great Migration, blacks now constitute a swing, an important voting block in many border states and in many northern states because of the concentration of blacks in the cities like Chicago and Illinois. And um, uh, Parker is defeated, the first first nominee to the Supreme Court defeated since Grover Cleveland's days. And uh, the political commentary of the time says this is because of the opposition of labor, but mainly the NAACP, who had organized an extremely effective lobbying campaign. And um, the thesis which the book explores is the fact that um, while we're very comfortable with the notion that uh, you need um, constitutional rights in order to serve as a political agent, we're not so comfortable with the fact that you don't get political rights unless you're first perceived as a political agent. So blacks in the 1920s were not conceived as a political agent, but the defeat of John J. Parker made them into a political agent and hence a fit subject for rights. And this is what allows uh, Caroline Products to reinterpret the Equal Protection Clause to give protection to minorities. The Equal Protection Clause during the 1920s had nothing to do with minorities at all.
It's fascinating, given all that you described, to think back to what you said earlier about how that how we so often glossed over or outright ignored, you know, what would happen in Taft Court. And it, it, everything you've described just points to how it really is so, there's so much going on here that that proves to be of such relevance, not just to the 1930s, but really, as you were describing, the 1980s and even down to the present day. I think so. I think so. We really appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Um, well, you know, my main job is not an historian. It's being a law professor. So I'm doing a lot of writing on um, uh, various First Amendment issues. I'm a trustee of the Facebook Oversight Board. And uh, I, so I do a lot of thinking about the governance of speech on the Internet and writing on that subject. Um, I am um, a co-reporter for the Restatement Third for Defamation of Privacy. So I'm rethinking how uh, our rules of defamation and privacy should be applied in a world in which much communication is virtual and digital rather than analog. Um, I, I write a lot about the relationship between discrimination and uh, free speech. So I have a, a piece coming out on the court's recent decision in 303 Creative, which holds that you cannot compel a website designer to um, not discriminate in the production of its websites because that would contradict freedom of speech. I do a lot of work with academic freedom. Um, I used to be general counsel of the AAUP. So I have a piece, a, a chapter in a book, a forthcoming book on institutional neutrality. This is a big issue now and controversies on campus. And I write a lot about the relationship between freedom of speech on campus and academic freedom, how these are different things and try to illuminate many of the uh, communication controversies we see coming out of universities at the present time. It sounds like a really impressive workload. I'm, I'm glad you're able to find the time to speak with us today. It's a pleasure, Mark, really. Well, thank you very much. And and and, th and thank you for, for the opportunity to, to describe the, the, this, this fascinating study, which I have no doubt is going to be the definitive work on, on the Taft Court for, for many years to come. Thank you.